Whoa. Hey. Hey. So we're back in business. Yeah. Um. Oh. I thought the happy description you gave me was pretty good, unless you want to do it again. I do, because I want to look up the... I have the article here, and I want to actually, like, look at the survey question. Like, yeah, I that was going to be my first question. Yeah, I want to actually look at it. And I do have it, so we might as well do it. Um, shit, the problem is, can I find it? Is it faster to search to find where I saved the file, or just go re-download it again? Download Chris, would you like a soda or some sort of non-alcoholic beverage? I'm alright for now. He's so nice, he offered to help pay for the beer. I also have orange. <laughs> really? Water. And he doesn't even drink it. I was Coconut like, man. Coconut milk. What was it? Coconut milk. Coconut milk. Well, it's like a, it's like soy milk, but. I thought you were in America. Oh, sweet. Alright, here we go. Coconut based. Not like the coconut milk you'd get, say, directly from the coconut itself. Oh. Okay. So I have the paper here. So would you like me to reintroduce it? I would. Yeah. I very much I would like we were that. talking about um, balls. So I was thinking this happiness study might be interesting to talk about. Um, have you guys heard about this? Uh, I mean, there have been a bunch of studies over the last year or so. Um, I hear a lot about happiness studies, and I'm always skeptical. So convince me, John. I also have just not heard of it. Well, see, here's... It, here's it's a big are, field in economics, actually. Like I, I know it is. Economics. It's a huge field. And, and the thing is, I think it's interesting because I can't make up my mind about it. So help me out, right? So anyway, the particular study that uh, has gotten so much attention is... Um, let, me, let me pull up the name here. It's a Global Perspective on Happiness and Fertility by Rachel Margolis and Miko um, Merskala, I'm going to say. And it was in um, Population and Development Review, March 2011. But I, it, I, I found out about it through blogs. Um, so Philip Cohen, who blogs at the Family Inequality blog, blogged about it. And then, uh, what are you laughing at? <laughs> the way you said I found out it through blogs, it's like, there's this guy named Dave Bloggs. He's got all the best information. <laughs> yes. Uh, you got to talk to Bloggs if you want to know what's going on. <laughs> He'll make you happy. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Um... No, so so the graphic sociology blog on the society page, that's where I found out about it, because she did sort of an interesting re, uh, reinterpretation of the, the charts in there. It was a nice plug there, too. Yeah, I, you know, I, I always try to get in some nice plugs. For where could I find page. that blog at? At the societypages.org slash graphic sociology. Oh, thank you. Um, but basically, so it's looking at... What, what's interesting about this is that there have been a bunch of studies that have shown that um, people with kids are less happy, right? Uh, Makes sense. Sort of challenging this like assumption that oh, being a parent is so wonderful and great and so rewarding, when in fact you talk to parents and they're stressed out and anxious and miserable, um, uh, or you know, or so the studies say. Right. This one was interesting because of two things. One, it was using um, GSS data, and actually had like a global sample. Right. And here's the question that they were asking people. This is all based on this one question. And whether or not you can measure uh, happiness with a survey question is something that's worth talking about, right? But respondents were asked, taking all things together, would you say you are very happy, quite happy, somewhat happy, or not at all happy? Did that come after a battery of other questions on specific points of happiness? It kind of sounds like it. See, you're challenging me on the on the content here, and I just skimmed the article. But I think that's the main question that they're looking at, right? Okay. I I I, I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, some diligent reader out there can fill us in on the what GSS. What phone number question. would they call if they wanted to fill us in? Six one two four two four AGIL. I think. Okay, good. Um. Anyway, so here's what's interesting about the study. They find they find. As, as has been reported elsewhere, when people have children, they are less happy. But they also found that when 
um, people are older, that those that had children when they were younger are more happy, right? So the idea is that children are kind of an investment, right? It's a stressful uh, time for you when you're, you know, in your 20s and 30s or whenever you have kids. But then in, in older age, it pays off because you've got these wonderful children who are there to support you. Children are like a, like a happiness 401k. Yes, yes. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, you should so. go into marketing. I am um, way ahead of you. But, but anyway, so that's, that's one interesting finding of this. The other is that it's an international comparison. So this pattern does not actually hold true across all countries, right? So, for example, they look in, in like the Scandinavian countries where there are more generous um, social welfare policies across the life course, and they find that there's not that huge dip in happiness for young parents, for parents when they have young kids, and there's also not a corresponding rise in happiness when they're older for when their kids are grown up. There's because because there's not, you know, there's there there are sort of social support systems for parents to make parenting less stressful, and also because there's such systems for older people, they're less dependent on whether or not they have kids to take care of them in the, in their old age, right? So I, th I think this is very interesting because on the one hand, I'm, I, you can look at a survey question, taking all things together, would you say that you are very happy, quite happy, somewhat happy, <laughs> or being attacked by kitchen utensils? That, and I believe, would lead you to be unhappy um, over the life course. Over the life course, on a whole, especially knives. If it happens one time, it's kind of entertaining, That's and it's a good story. So maybe, yeah, maybe it's more like Scandinavian countries. There's not a huge dip in how unhappy dishes attacking you would make you, but but I digress. So it's interesting because we can sort of ridicule that question, but at the same time, yes, we can. It makes it sort of there's like it makes intuitive sense, and the the difference across countries makes it intriguing. Because if it's if it's not measuring anything that's actually real, these patterns are really interesting, and there's like strong theoretical reasons to suppose that. This this makes sense. So Wait a second. You just said if if it's not measuring anything real, but there's interesting well, patterns. No, it's that, interesting. I mean, like, okay, so you have this question that you think, all right, if the data is useless across the board, there's and you find patterns, then there's something going on. Yeah, I mean, it seems like oh, it, really that, that, that question could be very superficial. Like, are you happy? Right, taking all things together, how happy are you? And you can just sort of like think of that as uh, whatever. I mean, people are just gonna say whatever they feel at the moment. Or they're just gonna you know say some like you know cultural whatever is culturally acceptable to say some places maybe you know, I don't know you can make up a bunch of reasons why that would be a stupid question and wouldn't actually get at any sort of real pattern in happiness within a society but when you see these you see differences across countries that vary based on social welfare regimes that's very interesting because then you have to say I mean it'd be a useless question everywhere if it's a useless question anywhere so why do you see these differences across countries are there what? other comparative cases besides just the Scandinavian nations that we can Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the GSS. So just because they're so commonly a whipping boy and, and easy compare contrast. that. Well, one of the things about happiness is there's that paradox, you know, that this literature um, kind of talks about. I think it's called the Van Hooven paradox, uh, something like that. Van Halen uh, paradox, I think. Van Halen paradox. That's when you get sad when David Lee Roth comes around. <laughs> but it, it was an economist economist in the 70s who was looking at these happiness i mean because i mean that's why this data is so rich i mean the questions might be bad but we have lots of it that goes all the way back to the 70s and he saw that people that had like we know that like your um affluence impacts your happiness um but the paradox is that countries that were generating more wealth 
through the 60s and 70s actually saw a decline in happiness. And so there was this kind of research initiatives to try to explain why does more wealth actually decrease our happiness and you can see like all sorts of marxist interpretation in that you know in a capitalist society in which one is always in pursuit of products to make you happy it's no you know no uh, surprising finding that the most capitalistic country is full of unhappy people um so there were all that those types of critiques but recently there's been kind of um a revisiting of the paradox and some people say well actually the paradox is that um if you make up to seventy thousand dollars money actually makes you happy but there's a diminishing returns after seventy thousand dollars um that is specific to the u.s and so in other parts of the of the world it might be a little bit different but i think you know because of these different paradoxes like economists have been fixated on this idea of happiness because it goes back to that kind of like sense of utility right like maximizing utility um so i think it's like what you were saying it was interesting that like even if we don't believe that it actually captures happiness there's some interesting patterns um but i'm not quite sure what the patterns actually relate to you know is that seventy thousand dollars controlled for inflation yeah like that was a recent study that i was reading somewhere so it's like today you know, $70,000, like, you know, from forty-five dollars to $70,000, like each thousands of dollars you earn actually makes you happier. Um, but for some reason, you know, at $70,000, um, extra, an extra 10000 really doesn't make you happier than you are. I mean, just setting my goals. I'm just saying I'm glad that we've identified the exact point at which mo money becomes mo problems. <laughs> that is any time mid to late nineties hip hop can be scientifically like established, I'm behind those findings. I, I think this is like this is something you should try in job negotiations, right? You know, be like, <laughs> I want seventy thousand dollars and not a dollar less. Why? Because science says that will make me happy. And see yeah. how persuasive that is. You know, why do you not want me to be happy? I'm not asking for more because more would just be a waste. I'm saving you, you know. Yeah. I think this but, is some strong bargain. You know, but I think the pursuit here. of happiness is very individualistic, you know, and I think, you know, this paradox of like when you have kids, you actually become less happy. Like I would imagine that your own sense of happiness is not as important, you know, like, yeah, you know, I don't have all the free time in the world when I was in my 20s, but you know, my kids are more important than my personal happiness. Um, I think it's funny that we're all talking about our 20s as being the time to have kids when um, I think we're all close to past that. Or how old are you, Jesse? <laughs> That's information I prefer not become public. <laughs> and I'm the only one with a kid here. But anyway... I, yeah, that stole that kid. I, that's true. That doesn't really count, does it? It's just a coincidence. I have a Dimaggio exactly like me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, that's that's actually the my my uh, my normal critique to this happiness thing. Prior to seeing this international data comparison, which I find really interesting, was sort of what you were getting at there, which is like this is this is a really cheap definition of happiness. And it, it's almost like more like that measures like contentment more than happiness, right? I mean, uh, I'm not I'm not stressed out about things, but is not being stressed out the same thing as being happy, right? Because at least personally, you know, like you look at your life and you look at the things that that you don't regret or that meant a lot to you. Like Jesse, you just went to Iraq, probably really stressful. 
I'm guessing at, eh. at least at least my, that that eh, was more stress stressed the hell yeah, out of me we'll anyway. Okay. But like you, you know, raising kids, doing taking on some ambitious project, you know, do whatever it is you do, those things. I think generally you look back on life and take great satisfaction in them, and they are a source of happiness in a sort of deeper sense. But yeah, you know, throughout them you're miserable, you're stressed out, you're anxious, you're worried. Um, but then that doesn't mean necessarily mean that someone who doesn't ever take on anything like that and just sort of coast through life, they might be more happy in the sense that this gets at, you know. But then again, maybe that's like a... You could sort of argue that, that that interpretation of happiness like comes awfully close to sort of glorifying stress and... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We got some dog chatter. It's okay, dog. Us here. I guess we could, we could pause right now and explain the setup, because this is unusual. This is unusual. Uh, we are actually at Jesse's house, uh, and... Uh, Jesse, Chris, and I are all sitting around a table, and Arturo is uh, is in California still on the laptop. So they're actually this is actually kind of live, which is unusual. We've never done that before. We're always safely separated through Skype. So if you hear the dog barking, that's Jesse's dog. Dog. She guards the house. Yes, and 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 guards the and podcast. brings me quite a bit of happiness. She does, even even when she stresses you out by barking. It's true, but I think animals are kind of the inverse of children, in that getting an animal makes you happy instantly, as opposed to having to put... You ever had a puppy? Did you get her as a Also puppy? because the... No, I get shelter dogs, John, because shelter dogs need homes. The penalties Damn. of accidentally killing the dog are far less severe than the penalties of accidentally killing the kid. This is true. I just I, we're talking about long term investments. So. Don't know that that ever really entered into my mind, but, but you're right. You that does give me a certain it, yeah. a certain sense of peace. <laughs> yeah. But what I was getting at is, you could argue that there's this sort of like a I don't know if you want a, a sort of um, glorification of stress and overwork that maybe you could say is culturally specific or something where uh, that maybe that's just sort of justifying. Oh, well, of course that's what makes you happy is, is overwork and throwing yourself into some grand projects so that you can achieve great things. And you could argue that, you know, maybe that's uh, dog agrees. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, there's sort of a critique of that too, you know, which is no, actually maybe the happiness question, the happiness measure, the, are you, are, are, what the hell? Okay, we lost our chair. <laughs> we didn't. Hey, what happened? No, you're When did you go away? I have no idea. I'm, I, I'm actually in my iPhone now. I just turned on my iPhone. Yeah, that's not gonna work. Can you hear? <laughs> <laughs> you're pretty crunchy. Sound bad? Did, did your computer blow up or something? Did your computer blow up or something? No. Did your computer blow up or something? Or network crashed again. Did your computer blow up or something? Man, I'm gonna. Are you getting the echo? The echo? The echo? Are you getting the echo? The echo? The echo? No. Echo. 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 Oh, we're getting an echo. Let's. We can just oh, wait for your computer to come back. We can just wait for your computer to come back. Wait for it to come okay. back. Wait, wait for it to come back. Wait for it. Wait for it to come back. Wait for it to come back. Wait for it to come back. Back on the line.
I was just making it up. Oh, okay. All right, I'm back. <laughs> All right, so where were we? Yeah, where's the break point here? Or the point break, as it were. That's we were talking about happiness. <laughs> That's good. It's true. That was clearly a topic we had been discussing. So, Arturo, I have a question for you on this topic. Yes, because you were talking about how this is a, this is a, a sizable area of economic. I, I'll start that over. <laughs> you were talking about how this was a, a pretty big area in research and economics, right? From my understanding, yeah. So wh- why is it? I don't quite get what the utility is in in investigating it when the constant critique since the '70s seems to be we're not that good at it. Is it economics or psychology? I mean, I know it's huge in psychology, but why economics? Sorry. <laughs> me, 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 me. That actually sounded like the start of a, like a pretty decent hip hop. <laughs> me, 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 me. Sadly, man, we're just recording songs all over tonight. Hey. Hello. All right. Are you back? I am back. Um. Yeah. Oh. Right. So, Arturo, you're gonna explain to us why happiness has been big in e- economics. Like, why do economists care about happiness? Okay. So, I I'm not an expert in the field, but this is my interpretation of it. So, it's like behavioral economics, which is kind of like a hybrid of psychology and microeconomics, and you know, like the free, the rational kind of choice model assumes that we're all trying to maximize our own utility. We're trying to do things that satisfy our own wants and needs. So I think that naturally translates into a study of what what really makes us happy as we move through different stages of life, you know, whether being married or not. And, you know, in an economic model, the more resources we have to spend on our wants and needs, one would kind of think that one would be more happy. So it's a paradox that as the economy has been growing and consumer power has been growing, it's ironic that those with the most money aren't able to maximize your utility. Actually, in a way, as you get more money, you start comparing yourselves to a different standard of happiness, right? Like, you know, before, you know, rationally, I just needed to be fed every day and have a house that I can call my own. But now that I have $70,000, I need a mansion, but mansions are really expensive, so you know. I mean, I think that's how kind of it's, behavioral economics. I was reading economics. a blog post about this. I think it was like Matthew Iglesias or something, who's old kind of a policy wonk guy, right? You know, <laughs> old blogsy, right? <laughs> um, but uh, but he he was making a really interesting point, which is that if you're making um, fifty thousand dollars a year, you have a huge reference group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And um, I mean, you know, like most of your peers that you know are probably within some sort of reasonable range of that right but when you get up to the higher income scales it's a lot smaller crowd so you're much more likely to know people who are making twice what you make right you're much more likely to be comparing yourself to people who are making millions if you're only making eight hundred thousand or you know what i'm saying like so there's this whole like uh and that sort of contributes to sort of escalating the wanting more wanting more is that you know me i look at someone making 30 percent more than me and think oh god i would love that and 30 percent more than me isn't that much you know but 
200%, 300% more than you when, when you're in like the upper classes, there's just, it's just a much smaller circle of people to compare yourself to. And you're much more likely to be in contact with people who are making a lot more than you. So there's much more incentive to keep driving up the, you know, to keep the, that, that race going on. You know? It kind of goes back to that classic, possibly apocryphal, finding that lottery winners are always really sad and depressed. Because they, yeah. they kind of they, they move into I, a house where they don't know anyone. They well, I actually heard something similar. I don't remember the name of this study, but it was it was actually something similar to this finding that they found the best amount to win in the lottery was something between eighty and a hundred thousand dollars. And in that sense, it was because it's what they found was that it's plausible that you could use that amount of money yourself. So like it's a big enough amount of money that it would be. Some life-shaping potential, right? Like you could pay off your house or something like that. Um, But it's not so much. But they find that people who win like multiple dozens of millions, then like everyone you ever know expects money from you, as you might imagine. But then a lot of them feel, even if it's completely justifiable that you don't give the guy who lives down the street you talk to like once a month some money, he'll think you're being a cheap jerk because you have so much money kind of thing. Um, and it's funny because, I mean, I don't know, it was just kind of an offhanded, humorous thing I read several years ago, but I just triggered it because it was pretty much the same range of money as apparently works in salary per year. That's well, you know, the happiness cutoff. There's this kind of, um, I think, like classic economics, like intro to econ scenario that people talk to undergrads about how, you know, would you rather have $50,000 in its 1850 or would you rather have $100,000 and it's 1950. And, um, you know, most people would say, wow, you know, $50,000 in 1850 is like a lot of money. You can buy mansions, you can live a really good life. But then again, you also deal with the fact that, you know, you're stuck in the 1850s, you really can't watch movies, you can't, uh, you know. <laughs> that kind of money I could. Yeah. Buy myself some future. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife is likely to die giving birth. You know, like there's all sorts of, other costs and you know so people will go well maybe a hundred thousand dollars is not a lot of money but it's you get to live in the 1950s and economists use this to talk about how you know one of the things about modern capitalism is that the economy is always growing and i think economists love to talk about this issue of um opulence of just you know as the economy grows individuals all get bigger pieces of this pie in the sky and so i think this idea that money doesn't buy, buy happiness runs counter to kind of the economic tradition right that like well in 1950 a hundred thousand dollars should buy you a lot more happiness than somebody who has fifty thousand dollars in the 1850s because the economy in the 1950s is just so much bigger um and so i think this paradox is like it, it drives a lot of research people are trying to figure out like why you know why aren't we happier than we should be and i you know then people have now gone back and said well these studies in the 1970s didn't correct correct for this or that and we really are happier than we've ever been um so i hear that as well but I, i'm not convinced of that actually i must say it really confirms every stereotype i have of economists that they are baffled by the fact that money isn't purchasing people happiness and have been apparently determined to figure well, out that that's wrong yeah First of all, can I just interject at this point and ban the word paradox from our discussion? That's not a paradox. It's not a paradox that you're wrong. Like, you would think one thing would happen and something else happens. That's not a paradox. It just means you're wrong. 
There's like this academic thing, like you put paradox on something, like you, you know, like uh, it just drives me crazy. No, that's that's a but, good point, but it's it's from their starting base. Oh, like, I know. know. I'm not saying it's your language. I'm saying like, yeah, that's like that drives me crazy about talking about. It. Anyway, it's pet peeve. Uh, to get like at Jesse's thing, Jesse's point, like I don't, I I don't know. As I'm always, I'm always afraid we're doing a straw man interpretation of economics, right? Um, and I mean that's a real Hopefully. risk when you get a bunch of sociologists talking. I think. Yeah. And I, I mean I do think there's a there's a there on the one hand there's the that interpretation which is how can they be that confused that money doesn't buy happiness? But on the other hand, like there's some it, it, I think you can see why they're attracted to the question because it does sort of challenge the core foundation of what their 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 assumptions, right? right. That the more if if money is power to go out and do and and make the life for yourself that you want to make and more money doesn't actually let you be more happy what's going wrong there you know yeah. I mean, and I, I think that's a defensible problem in the discipline that's not that's not it's not a paradox but it's interesting and it's not ridiculous I mean it's not I mean that makes sense like that you don't have to be an economist to sort of look at that and say yeah what's going on there why is that because I certainly feel like if I had um, four times my income right now I could be happier I can think of a lot of concrete things I could do that would definitely make me happy. It's like the old saying goes, you know, that money can't buy happiness, but happiness can't buy anything. I was going to say a swear word, but then I realized I got to bleep it. I was going to say me love. <laughs> money anyway, money can buy my love. Speaking of straw men about economics, there has to be a point at which we're talking about a straw man of this happiness research question because at some point someone had to come up with a better way of doing it than yeah a Likert scale of of happiness. But if you have well, you know if you have wait, thirty I mean, years of it, I'm you know. To remember, I read I mean, thirty this years book, of it, you have that consistency, but I read uh, just a bunch of people doing that same bad measure. I, I would think one of those people at least would decide. Well, maybe there's a different way we can do this. Different kinds of data we can use. You have know? you guys seen the book? That's why you're not a happiness researcher. I'm looking. Daniel Gilbert. Yeah, this is the stum- only reason. Daniel Gilbert stumbling on happiness. Oh yeah, I got this that is book. A, yeah, it was a popular book a couple years ago. I have the audio book. I listened to it a long time ago. So I'm gonna completely badly misinterpret what the book is about. But I do remember it was actually um, sort of on your question, Chris. How like there's this really simple simple Likert scale of happiness. Can't yeah. we go deeper than that? And then sort of looking at what actually makes people happy in more refined ways of getting at this. You know, like, they'll give people sort of, um, I, I, I don't even know, like, Arturo, you probably know this better than me, but, like, they'll give people, like, little tickers that they wear, and when it goes off, they're supposed to mark, like, their level of happiness or something, right? So the idea okay. is to, like, get the measure throughout the day at different times throughout their life, right? Um, so it, like, wakes them up at 3 a.m. Best off, I guess. No, but I guess that doesn't happen. Um, but, I mean, like, they, so there are more, I mean, this is talking about a giant international survey, international survey data, the, this specific study. But, I mean, like, there are um, studies that, that do try to get at it with a little more nuance, I think. Or yeah, multiple dimension, dimensions of happiness yeah, and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah. So last episode, you said something that I want to come back to. You were talking about your last your, real episode or last fake. Episode? The last real episode. All yes, right. we've had several false starts. Don't by the let way, them know about those. Oh, sorry. No, we haven't. We're 
flawless. They were for our Perfect. international customers. <laughs> B-sides. Um, so you said we were talking about um, uh, people doing things just because it's cool. I think it was in the context of academics. We were talking about politics and academics in particular, how like uh, sort of uh, politicizing your teachings in the classroom and how we were right. saying that's not necessarily because I think I think the, the, the context was it's not necessarily the case that sociologists who do that are thinking it's my mission to go and radicalize my students and indoctrinate them in a particular political worldview. That's not the case. But there is a sense within the discipline where you're measured with respect to your peers. What's cool is to be seen as the most enlightened progressive left sort of position, depending on, you know, like, and that, that varies. What that is varies, of course, depending right. on... Is that really that cool? I think so. I, no, I think, no, I, I mean, that's I, a productive no, no one wants to be, who, name, name a case in academia, name a circle where it's cool to be the conservative. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that, but like, I would, it's not necessarily cool to be the most radical person there in the it's cool to be sufficiently radical for your situation yeah Yeah, i mean i'm not saying everyone is like radical anarchists or anything but there's a there's a sense that yeah you 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 know there's a there's like an enlightened distinguished liberalism that everyone should aspire to just as just taken for granted right okay and then people take great joy when the research they do can be seen as not only being empirically rigorous and, and robust, but also advancing the, the, the cause of justice and righteousness, right? Like, there, there is that sense. And people want, like, there are very few people who would be happy, express glee in presenting research results that necessarily counteract some larger liberal social agenda. This may right. just be because I'm a criminologist, why I don't see eye to eye with this hypothesis, but I get where you're going with it. But well, anyway. Say more about that. I, well, I, yeah, yeah, that's on. a good... I feel like there are plenty of criminologists who take glee in presenting results that destroy the idea of liberal... Yeah, criminology's a weird field, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's, it's... I mean... Criminology as a subsection of sociology, like sociologists who happen to study criminological issues, probably fall not as much. I, I still think not as much. Probably less than many subfields, less yeah, than yeah, political yeah. sociologists, for example. Right. But yeah, I mean, they, well, they still at least fall, most of them, I would say, probably fall on this enlightened, liberal, blah, blah, schmeggity, schmeggity. Um, that's not what I said. Not as much. I'm almost Dave certain Bobby that was verbatim. Is he friends with Dave Boggy? <laughs> There's a lot of conservative criminology. But I was going to so. say, yeah, but like if you go into, especially if you go into like criminology proper departments yeah, that yeah. refer to themselves as criminology, yeah. it, there's, it's I, I, it's yeah. definitely a lot more acceptable to be conservative. But anyway, I mean, there's two, there's, there is this actual example that we could talk more about because we didn't talk about it a ton. But then there's the reason I was bringing it up, which is Chris's point that we were, that, that coolness and being cool is heavily undervalued as an explanation of social behavior, right? Um, like, you come up with all these, inti- these these complicated reasons for why professors have a liberal bias, when in fact a lot of it is because they want to be cool with, the, they want to be seen as cool with their peers. You know? And then, and it was just an interesting thing. You said that it was grounded in your dissertation research a little bit, and I thought that would be fun to talk about because um, I am not cool. And I want to know how to... <laughs> I actually, I got to say, I had this almost the exact same thought once in a totally different context, but like... <laughs> no, 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 I'm awesome. I meant your larger point. 
But I, oh, I remember yeah. there was a in, in a departmental workshop uh, several years ago. There was a student who was studying the cultural assimilation of an immigrant group. I don't remember who it was or what immigrant group. This is obviously details are, <laughs> details are sketchy That's... at this point. It was brilliant. Are you saying they're all the same, Jesse? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> wow, way to catch me on that. Um, no, but so, I mean, I'm I'm fairly confident it was it was Hmong immigrants. Oh, um, pal. Okay, okay, pal. Yeah, and I remember you know. It was. It was. Put other people into this like that. No, yeah. no, no. I'm not. I'm not knocking the no, word. No, no, no. We like bring in names. No, this is. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. we can just beep that, right? Okay, yeah. it's true. Anyway, yeah, it was good questions. research. I think. Yeah, I yeah it was very good research. I'm not yeah. saying the. I'm not. It was the questions yeah. that he got. Yeah. Um, it's Jesse's turn to talk, so I'm moving the mic back. <laughs> anyway, so the point was, so he's studying the cultural assimilation of these groups, and uh, essentially there was this debate about were were they doing like downward assimilation as they both. Um, tended to to socialize with and culturally appropriate and all these things with African American um, like lower income African Americans in the same neighborhood, right? So it's this like downward assimilation or these other kind of things, and I don't really it's not anywhere near my field of expertise. And obviously, this was several years ago, so I, I may remember it being very good. But I also remember very distinctly thinking like, well, you know, maybe there's that thing, but isn't it also just like every teenager wants to adopt the idioms of like low-income african-american i mean like that's the cool way to be right and so like i mean i couldn't think of a way i'm sure as much as coolness researchers could speak of it intelligently but it's kind of like well of course they want to i mean of course they want to act like that like all teenagers want to act like that right like that's the coolest you know thing to be right someday I want to see an interview with Chris on a documentary or something where it says, Christopher Pappas, coolness researcher. And it'll just be me with sunglasses. Yeah. I am a sociologist. I feel if you're a coolness researcher, I think you're required to wear a leather jacket at all times. I am a sociologist of cool. Uh, but please, yeah, enlighten us a little bit on your probably much more germane example. Um, I don't know where to step into this now because there's, there's a lot of ideas on the table. Um... That one. <laughs> so it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> but so okay. But can I? Oh. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Arturo. You've been quiet for a while. Is coolness necessary to study? I'm. I'm actually not convinced of that. Actually, I mean, how can one really study coolness, and what's the utility uh, okay. of it? So uh, take us back to like like Goffman, right? I mean, that's sort of like sort of grounded in that sort of traditional uh, interactionist kind of sociology where people are putting on a performance for others and um, how they behave is based to a large extent on what they think others think of them and and, and whatnot. Yeah, and and Goffman's point was, was more in the kind of structure of it all, that people in certain positions would get certain responses no matter what they did. Or people in lower positions would would you know do these minimizing things to help the higher status person save face, things like that. But there's there's also a sense that when when you're outside of a, a situation, a, a context in which status is very specifically delineated, then this thing called coolness kind of creeps in. So you can think of I mean the classic example that students always talk about when we teach Goffman is is anything involving dating, right? So, you know, when you initially meet someone, you might be able to read clues to figure out what their status is, but otherwise it's other stuff that's, that's going on. And one of the ways in which people talk about that is how cool the other person was, right? Which may seem like a minor point, but if you're looking at, you know, anything having to do with who ends up with who, maybe that could be 
explain a lot more of it. And in, and in contexts where sort of formal hierarchy are diminishing, it makes sense that this sort of thing would play a greater role. Yeah. So, like, I mean, in but academia, even, general, even in, you see that. I mean, you could even take it into a more formal context and say, you know, if you're working in a, in a formal organization, one of the ways to secure your position there is to make everyone else think that you're cool. Makes them, beyond your capacity for the job, beyond the production, um, it's, it's your the level in which you've convinced people that there's something special about you. It's like charismatic authority, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't mean, you think have we that there's like this a classical sociological theory enough? This is very impressive. <laughs> Goffman, Weber, we're throwing, we're, we're the, running the gamut, gamut here. Do you run the gamut? What do you do? The I gamut? believe that is precisely what one does to a gamut. If one one does, doesn't want to get arrested. <laughs> you were saying, Arturo? Arturo, please. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, isn't there like, you know, when you're studying something like coolness, and we say, well, it's really about signaling social status. And there's a way in which somewhat arbitrary dispositions get labeled cool. We figured out where you stand in the social hierarchy depending on what, how you express yourself. But isn't there also just like an essence of coolness itself? Like where, you know, we say it's all about, it's this kind of uh, instrumental logic of how coolness operates. But there's just also some people are cool, right? I mean, or am I missing the point altogether? Yeah, like, I just doesn't have to try, <laughs> I think is essentially what he's saying. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, some people don't have to try. Like, there's a kind of yeah, it's, it's uncool, we work really hard, and there's the people who are just cool. Oh, man. But I, you can't be serious. <laughs> why, why not? I mean, I feel like... As a you sociologist, could... you, you must take on principle, um, you, you sort of have to stand on the notion that everything comes from somewhere. There's no, there's no essentials here. No, see, it's, but he's also uh, he's got the biology creeping in, right? That's Arturo's thing. He's crossover with biology and sociology. You arguing for the cool gene? So he is, he is. Yeah, I believe he's arguing cool for innate coolness right now. Yeah, innate I, coolness. I think I there's do an know innate coolness. coolness. <laughs> um, no, there's not. A, I don't think there is an essential cool or an innate coolness. Everything I'm just saying is that contextual when you... and situational. I would actually like to see some twin studies done on this. <laughs> exactly. Like, do cool Arturo. kids have a cool twin, or Arturo, maybe the inverse is true? Call your friend Thomas Bouchard. Well, and it, it, see if he knows any anything to help us out here. Well, it's the same thing that I have wrong with with happiness. Is like when you try to reduce it down to something that you can measure, and you come out with a very instrumental logic uh, to describe. That's not the way. That's not the way I would go about doing it. But, but but okay, even if you don't measure in a in a slikered scale, you're still reducing it to like this instrumentalness where no. you know, economists are no. saying, Well, happiness no. is a result no. of maximizing utility and, and the failure to do it so. You're saying coolness is is a function of, you know, social hierarchies. And while I admit I'm saying other people have said this, that. I'm not necessarily saying that I say that. So what do you say? What my also, what my take on the question is is in what ways are certain notions of practices of dispositions of coolness being created and maintained but also i would i would throw in that like coolness actually like fundamentally has to be a social phenomenon right like coolness can't exist in a vacuum right like it it by definition because coolness is how others esteem one right yeah so like it has has to be a a social creation definitely so ergo it can be studied like any other social the big topic that everyone talks about and that i've been in this is the third time today, <laughs> is, is what everyone talks about now is this notion of hipsters, right? 
So yeah, and that's the typical reaction you get. Must be a hipster. Connecticut, yeah. Because the more firmly you deny and hate hipsters, the more likely you are to be a this hipster. This has become kind of a, a mark for a lot of people. I, I know someone who I think, to most other people who didn't know her, would think that she was a hipster. But, and then I, I brought that up to her, and she said she would be extraordinarily offended if anyone called her a hipster, because that's not who she is. And it's, you know, there's, there's a, a well, weak mean, form... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm trampling on your thought, but I, I feel so like for, in that respect, like, to me, hipster perfectly, uh, like, maps onto the, like, uh, gangster rap rivals of rivalries of maybe like a decade ago where like every every guy is is saying like he came from the streets but like all these other guys they're just posing it right they're just in the studios pretending it you know that I'm the real one right because it's a whole like the whole identity is based on authenticity but like being in this sense you know it's kind of the opposite but like being called a hipster implies that you're inauthentic right right yeah precisely yeah but even among hipsters if you look at it closely this notion of authenticity is extremely arbitrary is not the right word but it's superficial let's say. oh yeah um so but don't why you think do there's some something to be said? obviously superficial things carry more weight than other obviously superficial things essentially is there something to be said about somebody who worries about being cool and who's cool and not cool, and then there's the person who doesn't even think about being cool but just is? I mean, that's where I think the does that does that person exist though? Uh, is that friend you? <laughs> because I don't think about being cool in the morning, but look at me. I, no, I I think it doesn't matter. Like from the perspective of uh, sociologists who are interested in the social impact of. Of things, it doesn't. Why does it matter if Chris has great angst about whether or not he's cool or whether or not he just does it? What's interesting is whether or not people respond in particular ways, and it serves him in particular ways in yeah, it's, situations. It's in situ. It's in situation. Um, part of the problem here, I think, is, is the overuse of the term coolness as this monolithic thing. And of course, any monolithic term always kind of falls in on itself. There are particular forms of being cool that are appropriate for particular. Times, spaces, context, and so on and so forth. Break it down. Give <laughs> us a typology of cool. <laughs> give me a beat. No. Um, I can't give you a typology of cool because I think, I mean, you, again, it, it's, for me, so contextually defined that there are different typologies in different areas. It, it, talking about cool just generally, in the way that Arturo's been talking about it, some people who put effort into it and some people who just manage to be it, that's, that's a particular manifestation of this. Um, So, so I'm a big Simpsons fan, and one of the famous I, I like Milhouse. Who doesn't like Milhouse? <laughs> and one of his famous quotes is, "At least my mom thinks I'm cool." Um, there's always going to be someone else who will speak to your coolness because the term really doesn't have any kind of meaning beyond that. It's such a generic term. But when you start to get more specific about it, into the ways in which people are cool, into the particular strategy they use, then there's something worth talking about that breaks us away from this question of innate coolness and gets us towards particular social and cultural formations. So there is a hipster way of being cool. There are several hipster it's ways a way to of being bring it cool. Home. But there's also going to be, I mean, in, in the comments we've suggested so far, it, it puts it in bold relief. A lot of people don't like hipsters and don't think they're cool. And especially think that they think they're cool, but they're not. If we can make this more middle school than it needs to be. Um... I also tend to think of them as coated in blue, while I myself have a hard rubber armor. I think, in generally, life is more 
life is more middle school than we want it to be. I would say high school, but uh, I'm a, I agree with the general trend. Yeah, yeah. you know, same, uh, same thing. Yeah. Everyone still wants to be cool, cool kid in high where, school. Where I think really? A, yeah. Do you really think that? I, you don't want to be the cool kid in high school? I guess I gave up being cool, and I, I think that's why I think I am cool for <laughs> Oh, see, there's your first mistake right there, dude. That's, that's classic. I, I think this is Status interesting. Dropout. I think where this, yeah. is mo- this, is, this is really interesting is in the context of um, institutions. Like the, uh, Not to like bring it back to the point I already made, but um, <laughs> it's, it, I think it's worth talking about again. Like in, it, think about um, like higher education, for example is much less formal and rigid, I think, than it was 20, 30 years ago. I mean, we call our professors by first name. They probably don't necessarily... It's not like they wear a suit and tie to school every day, and students just walk into their office and, you know, I mean, call their professors by their first name. There's this real informal, you know, leveling of hierarchy, right? But that doesn't mean that the hierarchy isn't there. It's just there have to be other ways for it to manifest itself, and often it's these soft things about... um, <laughs> like, you know, what, what's cool, and and in, in in the case of academics and social scientists, I think ultimately, coolness carries a coolness has a liberal bias. How's that? Oh. Yeah. Oh. I do agree that we should we should hold the discussion to one particular context, so we might as well go with that. One. Well, I mean, no, I, I don't even necessarily. I'm just I, you can go more than that too. Like we were talking about um, um, wealth inequality earlier too. Because it's also the case that corporations and, you know, the world in general is much less, uh, you know, rigidly hierarchical than it was in a cultural sense. I mean, it's not like you can't, there are certain signs if you look at some random person, whether or not they're wealthy or not, but not necessarily, you know, Um, you don't necessarily know if the guy that you see walking down the street is crazy wealthy or out of work and broke, right? Um, So... There, there are other kinds of things come into play. So, and you and you could see how maybe this is a stretch, but I'm trying trying to make too many connections with our discussion here. You can see how in that kind of environment, the kind of um, uh, consumption race conditions we were discussing earlier for increasing wealth accumulation among the wealthy classes could really come into play, because uh, you have to expend so much of your energy to show that you're cool, you know. Um, whereas if it was just, I'm wealthy, I live in this neighborhood, damn it, that's all that counts, that's enough, that would be different. But in a world where you have to make your own, <laughs> make and remake your own self constantly in comparison to other other people, it be, that's expensive. Yeah. I don't know, maybe that's too much of a stretch. I don't know if that made sense or not. I, I felt that, like there was a lot going on at once, and I don't know where I come in on it. <laughs> I... I'd like to go back to the to the facts, or the the cool having liberal bias. <laughs> I'd like to go back to the facts. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> get off your flights of fancy, John. I'd We're like doing to go business back to here. I was right. Um, no, to the coolness having a liberal bias thing. Yeah. Okay. In the academia. In academia, and and I think a lot of people stretch that out to just in general. That coolness always carries with it some sort of anti-authoritarian streak. Or that's well, true. But, I mean, but, that's, it's, that, it's but it's always... not true because who are the cool kids in your high school? Fair enough. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, there's always one cool rebel kid, but you're no, correct. No, but, but I mean, correct. that's uh, what's uh, coolness is. I mean, if you go to a, um, 
I, I don't know. Here I go making up like some stereotypical place, and you can make fun of me for this. But you go to like some um, suburban uh, Republican hotbed where everyone's a Republican and everyone loves Sarah Palin or something. That's cool. Like there's sort of coolness going, and that that has a kind of anti-authority bias too, because of course the liberals run the government. Um, I mean, seeing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think also, like, I mean, the the high school one, in another example, though, the more I think about it, like, the cool kids were anti-authoritarian, but not in the, like, burn down the state sense, in the, like, parents just don't understand <laughs> sense, you know what I mean? Like, there's always some sort of authority to be raged against, whether it actually is... Uh, An- anti-authority anti-author- is not anti-authoritarian. Ooh, no, he didn't. Welcome to the world of semantic brinksmanship. Uh, no, but it's a good point, right? Because there is, I think, I think an essential element of coolness is in some. Well, it's always like it's playing by your own rules, right? It's Whether you do or before. don't, it's, it's, there's a there's always some form of oppositionality yeah. that people have created to to say that we're cool or they're cool, but there's always yeah. an other. Yeah, by that. definition, it's yeah. an exclusionary thing. Sure, and we've seen a lot of uh, sort of shifts on that recently. Like, um, that's why hippies are not cool because they think everyone's equal and that is like the least cool <laughs> thing possible. Yeah, because you also have to have uh, a process of controlling the borders, of policing the boundaries of coolness, right? Right. Who's in and who's out. You're and if cool you're too inclusive, you then that marks it off. But then you can't be too, too, too exclusive yeah. to be a, too much of a jerk about it, essentially. Yeah. So you have to hit that sweet oh, you're spot. mean girls. Yeah. Yeah. It only goes so far. Like, um, oh, I had something good and I just lost it. Was it going to be a cool example? I'm sorry, I can't resist. It may have been so cool, it was hot. Oh, and now see, there's another cemetery. Um, Um, I'm sorry, I feel as if my interjection derailed your (laughs) otherwise fruitful discussion. I think I don't have any fruit. I hear the music. (laughs) <laughs> That's a good thing to hear. I feel as if we well explored coolness. <laughs> we didn't get anywhere, but it was interesting. Wait, you can't have such a fucking linear view, man. <laughs> you gotta let the conversation. I've got stuff be, that I'm working on, and that that's cool. Yeah, I think you can start to if you if you figure out particular forms of coolness out there, you can start to develop sort of research about how to figure them out and break them down. Um, and then, once you have them all dutifully cataloged after a few generations, then you can start to note. I mean, I, I feel like you could find some essentials of what is cool, right? Like, we sure. we already had one. Like, there's some sort of anti-authority, very loosely defined. Yeah, there's, there's anti-authority. There's the sense that you're not trying. So whatever it is is authentic. It's not, yeah, it comes it's with ease, no as Arturo effort. pointed you out. You can't try yeah. to be cool. Precisely. Um, it's, it's it's however not trying to be cool doesn't necessarily make one cool. Right. It's a necessary but not sufficient. Yes. The interesting thing about but then then here's the question: Is coolness? Um, is it a? I guess it's a, it's anti-authority, but it's not non-conformist, right? Or or if it is conformist, it's you're the one that's that's exerting whatever one else. Not is always, because right? there are so many competing definitions of what conformity is. Right. And then either kind of kind of classic stuff that people would throw back at the, you know, like the, the punk kids or whatever the the outsider group was was, you're all different in the same exact way, right? Yeah. So at certain at a certain point you have to account for that. Um, 
just had that point. <laughs> You're just so what? Fun now. But we are making a sweet typology of cool right here. <laughs> like, I seriously, listeners out there in Radioland, you are 100% getting a treat whenever it is that you're listening to this podcast and that you are witnessing uh, really an entire new academic field being born. In the future, I think we will mark our calendars by this date. We should record... What, do you want to say anything about Iraq? I don't know. We can do it next time if you I want. I think at some point that would be What's a good thing. to say? It's country. We can do it next time. It's main next. You can say that we. You can say next time. You can say like, well, you know, you, whenever you want to talk about it, you can just say that we kept trying to get you to talk about it, but you had to fully process and and deal okay. with grapple with the data, the massive mounds of data. So that's actually my biggest problem. Is now that I'm back, everybody's like, "So what'd you learn?" Yeah, exactly. and I'm like, "That's the last thing I want to talk about." I'm not that's asking you for your, your. That's what I'm saying. Thesis. Like, I can totally understand. That. I just like, assume that you might have some cool stories. Oh, I have plenty of entertaining it, stories. It's yeah, one thing. It's one thing, like when you're there and we're doing these, and you can talk about what happened that day or something. But like now that you're back, it's like, geez, what happened? I was there like six months or whatever. Sure. It's it's not like you can boil that down yet. I do have some funny stories though. Well, all, all of them making fun of people no one will ever meet so. a quick funny story to take us out quick funny story to take us out um, okay here's one of my favorites the, uh, the Kurds love Americans I think I mentioned this before because uh, for many reasons but a big one being they're under the slight misapprehension understanding that the war was fought for them um, so most most all Kurds are pretty pretty pro America um, and see it as like it, it's like a cartoony like 1930s immigrant you know like America's the land of opportunity I'm gonna move there someday and start a business you know like that kind of thing what a voice um, for an immigrant that's <laughs> that is if I understand cartoons correctly what immigrants talk like uh, but anyway so uh, a lot of people would often explain to me what America was like. <laughs> um, and one day, uh, my interpreter and I, we were at the Department of Residency. I had to get my residency card to stay there. And uh, it took, you know, all, all morning, as these things do. And my interpreter kept apologizing. And he was saying, like, you know, I'm so sorry. This is just, you know, this is the way of my country. I, I know it's not like this in America. I'm so sorry. And it's like, well, no, it, it really is like this in America, too. I mean, if you want to deal with a government bureaucracy, you're going to going to be there all day and I was like you know in fact it's, it's a cultural joke about if you want to get your driver's license you got to clear your whole day you know blah blah and he thinks for a second he says no you're not right <laughs> and I was like really and he said yeah my friend explained to me that in America you don't even have to go in you can just send them an email and they'll send you whatever you need to the post and uh, you know I kind of chuckled and I was like no it's just that that doesn't happen anywhere and uh, he thinks for another second he goes no no, you're not right. And that was just kind of the end of the discussion. <laughs> That's pretty Fantastic. funny. Though, to be fair, his friend who has never been out of the country probably does understand America better than I do. That was sarcastic, but then somebody could have at least reacted in some sort of way other than <laughs> bewildered silence. I thought you were deep. Just cut that part. Especially the, 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 the